This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So when I think about how do you take an issue from the plain sense of scripture and apply it in a contemporary fashion, or in other words, how do you take an issue that scripture doesn't directly and explicitly address and tease out what either the or a scriptural perspective would be on that issue in the contemporary day? Um, That is first and foremost, from a Jewish perspective, that is quite literally the entire purpose of our lives, figuring out how this eternal document is meant to apply across the generations. There, there's a famous statement by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik of blessed memory, one of the great theologians, Jewish American theologian, really Jewish theologians in toto of the 20th century, where he was riffing on the idea that Maimonides, one of the great medieval and, and civilizational thinkers of all time, uh, Maimonides, um, you know, in the early middle ages, um, has this conception that there are 13 principles of Jewish faith and, you know, people, some, you know, some great Jewish thinkers have fewer than 13, some have more than 13, some have this, some have that, some, but you know, those are pretty 13 famous ones. And Rabbi Soloveitchik argued that there actually is a 14th principle of faith. And that is that the Torah, the Bible and, and its, and its traditions in the Jewish, that the Torah applies and must apply in each and every single generation. And that's something we have mm. to believe. It's a 14th cardinal principle of faith. Mm. So the question is to me, not so much, can you do that? Uh, but how would you do it? Mm. And what would it look like to do that? And the way that I typically approach that is by kind of problematizing the relationship that I think your average Joe on the street believes that we're supposed to have with scripture or, or has with scripture in practice. And that is, we tend to think of the Bible as, um, a book, it's a text and it has words in it. And our job is to interpret those words and see what they mean. Um, and so that's kind of like an interpretation approach to scripture. Mm -hmm. That is definitely an enormous part of the Jewish tradition. Don't get me wrong. But I actually think that there is, there's A, so much more to it in the Jewish tradition. And B, I think if you start from the place of, if you asked scripture, quote unquote, how does scripture want itself to be interpreted? Mm -hmm. The answer is not textual interpretation. I mean, it's clear that that's the last thing on the Bible's mind. So let me just give you a couple of examples of how that's clear as day. Number one, just go through the books of Moses. In the books of Moses, it's clear that, you know, the word of God, you know, the 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 Torah, as, as we would call it in the Jewish tradition, has to be written down unquestionably. But what happens to the copy that's written down? Well, there's a written copy. Moses takes it and he sticks it, as the book of Exodus tells us, he sticks it right in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, where literally nobody is allowed to see it. Right. Not, not even the high, the high priest can, can go into the Holy of Holies once a year, but right. even the, the high priest doesn't look at that copy. No one ever sees it. It's just there. Um, and 
there are other copies that are mentioned, but there's no, there's no record anywhere in scripture that anybody ever makes those copies. There's no record in scripture anywhere until much, much mm. later to the second temple period. There's no record the book of Kings, the book of Samuel, the book of judges, any of the books of Moses, the book of I, Isaiah, nobody's reading texts and nobody's interpreting texts. Nobody's saying, here's what's, here's what is written in scripture. The word there would be katuv, right? right? Something that's written. Nobody says what's written in scripture and what does it mean? On the contrary, throughout scripture, what is emphasized again and again and again, dozens, if not hundreds of times, are things like the book of Exodus says, machar, that you shall tell your child after you tomorrow, or you know, Kish Alcha bin Khamachar, when again elsewhere in the Pentateuch, when your child asks you tomorrow, here's what you tell them. Shma bini Musar Vicha Vaati Toshrati Mecha. Listen, my child, to the to the to the teachings of your father and do not let go of the law of your mother. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, 8. If you have something that challenges you, here's who the person that you go and ask. Over and over. Scripture emphasizes that the way that it is to be passed down and interpreted is by human to human, is by teacher to student, is by authoritative, you know, and wise sage to an inquiring, curious, and spiritually hungry pupil. And the reason that's so important is number one, it solves a major interpretative problem, for, like a hermeneutical problem for us. It just solves a basic narrative problem in the story of the Bible. That's the, the least important thing, but still very interesting. So right. namely, what I have in mind is, you know, one of the kind of foundational uh, texts, a locus classicus of like old school, like documentary hypothesis, biblical criticism. Right. These, the are, these are views that the, the the biblical text, specifically the Old Testament, parts of it come from lots of different sources uh, over time and are stitched together by various people later in history. Yeah, and it's like yeah. the and the Bible in this kind of in this view, which was kind of popularized in pre-war Germany and gained a lot of steam in the academy afterwards, is that the Bible, as we know it, particularly the the you know what Christians would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, is just like a bad you know copy and paste job from a couple of different Google Docs. And the ground zero for that story, or even again, if you don't subscribe to that, just the idea that like people were just like making stuff up and writing it into the ground zero for that is the story in the book of Kings where uh, Josiah, one of, you know, a seventh century king, one of the great legendary kings of Judah uh, and his priest, he'll, I, I'm, I, get, I imagine in, in English it would be Hilkiah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing the right uh, phonemic transliteration now, there. Now we're talking. Yeah, so, yeah let's give it in the Hebrew, though. Right. So Hilkiah. Hilkiah. Uh, so, yeah. so Yoshiahu and Hilkiah. So it's King Yoshiahu and his high priest Hilkiah. So Josiah and Hilkiah, you know, have this moment where uh, Josiah is famous for his sort of quote-unquote reforms, uh, which is pr- a terrible term because it's, it's just not accurate right. to the story. But he's basically one of these kings who, you know, finally deals the death blow to old school, classical idol worship, as in like literally worshiping figurines in the biblical story. So it takes like a thousand plus years for ancient Israel to wean itself off of its idolatry, you know, uh, figurine fetish. And Josiah is the one who puts the nail in the coffin. How does this come about? Well, the book of Kings tells us that Josiah and Hilkiah, his high priest, kind of go into the temple and they open up the Ark of the Covenant and they see this 
book and they open it up and they read it and they're like, oh my God, like there are all these things like in the book of Deuteronomy that we're just doing wrong. And, and they kind of correct themselves. Now, old school Bible scholars had a field day with this story because what they said as well. Obviously, they didn't discover, quote unquote, anything. What they really did was they invented something. They did the old Joseph Smith. Look what I found in the woods. Right. Let's call it. (laughs) Let's call it. Exactly. Let's call it the book of Deuteronomy. It's like a South Park setup, right? Like, let's call it. Let's call it the book of Deuteronomy. And oh, my God, look what we found. And it happens to say all the things that we already think. Right. Like, and that was kind of where the Bible scholars like, you see, even the Bible thinks that they just made up a bunch of stuff. Yeah. If you actually read the Bible correctly and take all of the cues that the Bible itself gives about how it is meant to be interpreted, as we saw earlier, it becomes clear that what's happening is nothing of the sort. What happened is that for a thousand years, people studied the word of God the way that God intended for his word to be studied, namely through an organic tradition of wise teachers and curious pupils passing traditions down from one step to the other. Um, and the text in that respect is meant to not be the the guide it's meant to be the it's meant to be sort of the guardrail mm-hmm. um you know that that prevents you know that prevents us from just doing whatever the heck we want but what happened what's clear is that there def, you know there was a written text of the bible it's just that nobody had looked at it in hundreds of years because why would you the bible doesn't it certainly doesn't think you need to be looking at it it happened uh, to be well that, uh, can i cross check you here for a second go ahead yeah I mean, Deuteronomy, this text, does right, say that, that the king and, is and, supposed to look at the... So the king, it does say he has to handwrite a copy of the Torah for himself that's to be kept by the Levites. So there's this tradition that the Levites sure. are some kind of keeper of some written text. Yeah. Sure. And, the, and he's supposed to read in it, but there are two issues there. One is, again, there's... It's not clear that the kings actually do that. They they should, but it's not clear <laughs> it that they actually do that. It seems pretty clear that they're not. That they don't. It seems yeah. obvious that they or don't. Or they're just ignoring it, Yeah. Yeah, or again, like it, again, we have to remember this is a this is a society in which, you know, I remember when I was, I remember when I was in either my master's or, or my or or my doctoral program, and I remember being at some sort of you know Bible studies conference, and somebody saying something to the effect of, you know, well, you have all these stories about rabbis who like memorize literally the entire Talmud, mm. but obviously that's an exaggeration, mm. and it's like I quite literally know right. many people right that I, I i've seen them quote chapter and verse like it's not a right. it's, <laughs> it's an, not it's a crazy thing unthinkable to them though actually exactly just so the, they don't have enough imagination or they don't have an experience of yeah. anybody who would do that yeah in a culture that has such thoroughgoing orality and oral culture and respect for elders and teachers such a thing is you know is just not normal and natural but you can see that over the course of the israelite story whether they did it exactly the way they were supposed to or as is more likely because this describes everything that the israelites do in the bible they didn't do it perfectly <laughs> right the fact of the matter is that by the time that it josiah and hilkiah are the first people to say hey you know what it's been a while it's been a minute let's check what's actually in the writings and to their horror they find that they've gone like really far off base, or at least that they've, you know, they, they, they've needed this check. So throughout certainly biblical history, throughout Jewish history, there's been this push between and, and Jewish, 
uh, Jewish tradition has actually conceptualized this very, very carefully and clearly. Uh, there's this push and pull between what in Jewish tradition is called Torah Shebichtav, which means the written Torah, and Torah Shebaalpeh, which means the oral Torah. The idea that there are all sorts of traditions that are passed down through sages and teachers, from parents to, to children, from teachers to students. And what's clear when you read the Bible is that both of those things are essential. There's a written text that that you can and should use, certainly on occasion and 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 as a check. But the idea is that this is supposed to be a lived tradition, right? Mm-hmm. This is not supposed to be a static thing that applied in the past and maybe somehow applies today, but not even necessarily. The whole point is that you're supposed to take these traditions and apply them in every generation, not just by uh, not just by figuring out what you know, in a mathematical sense, what's the equivalent of agricultural based usury then? And what is that today? But there's an organic tradition of sages and teachers who are empowered by God, uh, to teach. And, and actually one of the most remarkable things about the Jewish tradition, which, you know, and I've talked about this on, on my podcast, good faith effort quite a bit. What I think positions Jewish thought as I think one of the going it's going to be one of the go-to resources for some of the most advanced thinkers in the world moving forward is that because of this Judaism has this really interesting push and pull between uh, centralized authority and totally decentralized tradition prolifer you know traditions right. proliferating so Im- improvisations that yeah, yeah are so, safe and unsafe yeah yeah so you have you know you have communities you know over the course of hundreds of years you have communities in the Rhineland and communities in Yemen and communities mm. in North Africa and communities in Spain and Italy and northern France and southern France and Provence and all of them have you know crucial things in common but they also have these kind of local differences and w- that's kind of what allows Judaism to be so incredibly creative. It's like jazz, it's improvisation. There's a, a clear blues structure that everybody knows and follows, but you know, you have your Coltrane's and you have your Miles Davis's and you have, you know, and you have your Charlie Parker's and your Dizzy Gillespie's. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think in a crypto world and I think in a world of network states, like being able to think this way is going to be essential. You're going to need the, the bedrock, eternal truths of the Bible, and you're going to need the ability to think in a decentralized way. And by the way, if you want to see the, the clearest illustration that the, the Bible itself understands that, that you can't operate without both written text and, and oral tradition, just take, uh, just take, uh, the example here. I'll, I'll find it for you really quickly. Um, Deuteronomy 13, 12 through 18 is, uh, is all about this. It's this case. It's this like crazy case that Jewish tradition actually says, you know, never actually happened. Hmm. Um, so this is really like theoretical. It could happen, but it hasn't oh. ever happened. So it's theoretical yeah. law. Um, you know, and there are, cu- there are a couple of laws in Deuteronomy like that, where, you know, where the rabbinic tradition says, again, they could happen in theory, but they haven't happened in practice. Uh, but Deuteronomy 13 is all about the idolatrous city. And if you find the city that, you know, completely reverts to idolatry or, or sort of, uh, you know, degrades into idolatry, you raise the whole thing and you, and you kill everybody. Um, now you would think, and you would think correctly that in order to 
execute anybody, let alone a whole mass of people, for the very same Bible that says, uh, you know, whosoever spills the blood of a man by a man right. shall his blood be spilled, that in order to execute even one person, let alone a whole city of people, you would need some very serious checks and balances. You have to clear a very high threshold. And the answer is, of course you would, right? So the Bible says, uh, okay, so you, if this happens, you have to kill them all. But how do you know uh, that they're guilty? Oh, don't worry about it. The Bible's got an answer. You have to investigate. Great. How do you investigate? So the Bible says, don't worry. This is uh, this is uh, um, uh, this is uh, Deuteronomy uh, thirteen fourteen. You shall inquire and make a search. Don't worry about it. You, yeah. it's, okay. There's three three terms there of inquiring just piled up on top of each other. Right. right? Like so this, this diligent is, search. Uh, so so that's where the kicker is, right? Yeah. So what does it mean that you have to ask questions? You all, you have to, vidarashta means you shall seek. Vachakarta yep. means you shall inquire. So, but what, what does that mean to search and inquire? What kind of questions do you ask? And the Bible says, don't, don't, don't worry, we got you. Vidarashta vachakarta, hetev. Hetev means diligently, right? right. Like very well. <laughs> so, so what kind of questions do you ask? Good questions. Don't worry about it. Now, there are, there are hundreds of thousands of, 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 pages between um, between the talmud and the commentators and the there must be millions of words that are written on th that have been written and commentaries that have been explained on those three words alone right because what does it mean to ask very good questions what does that even mean it's clear i mean the bible doesn't tell you these are the questions you should ask right it's abundantly obvious that it means for the people who have received it to develop this tradition. It was abundantly obvious. Otherwise you couldn't have a, you couldn't have a legal system otherwise. And so this is, I think where Jewish tradition with respect to the Bible really, really shines because on the one hand, it not only affirms, but it stakes everything on the idea that the Bible needs to be applied in every single generation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're not taking it seriously. And at the same time, Jewish tradition also affirms that in order to have any possibility of doing that, we cannot simply rely on textual interpretation alone. We need to have an organic living tradition and we need to and we need to be able to take that seriously as well. Now, both of those things check each other, right? The written text checks, provides sort of a, a framework beyond which the, the living organic tradition can't go. And the living organic tradition allows these words, which are just kind of, which otherwise would just be static, sterile ink on a page and breathes life into them mm. and brings it into everyday life. Hello, hello. My name is Ari Lam, and I'm the host of Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society. Conversations feel like they've become so predictable nowadays. You open up Twitter, turn on the news, or even just strike up a conversation with your friends, and you probably feel like you more or less know exactly what people are going to say before they even say it. So Good Faith Effort is all about having those conversations that you literally will not hear anywhere else. Want to hear the former head of publicity at Def Jam Records and a legend in the world of hip-hop talk about how Abraham and the book of Genesis helps him see Run DMC in a new light? 
Want to hear a leading VC in Silicon Valley talk about how the prophet Isaiah informs her work? Want to hear a reporter for the New York Times talk about why she's converting to Judaism or a best-selling author and professor of the humanities talk about why she decided to convert to Catholicism? Want to hear an Oscar-winning producer and leading podcaster reflect on how religion can save the American soul? Well, all I can say is subscribe to Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a listen. And listen in to the inspiring, fun, crazy conversations that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Yeah, it, it very much reminds me of a couple things. Um, a, I think Christians could, you know, be reading right along in parallel tracks here, um, including the orality dimension. I mean, we think about, I mean, the Gospels, uh, by everything we know about the Gospels, those weren't written down until decades after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and they're written down they're originally called the memoirs of the apostles, as you know, because you're right. a, you're a uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you're an expert in that area, and um, and so there is this. Well, what were they doing in between that time? Like how how you know how could you have gospel? How could you have the gospel if there's nothing written down for people to read? And you know, Christians and Jews, I I think, are also called you know uh, bookish people, where people of the book, right? Um, but what you seem to be suggesting that I think a lot of people might viscerally react to is like, no, we're actually people of a lived tradition that has texts that guide us, right? And so uh, if I hear you correctly, is that a fair assertion? We the, the texts are the guardrails. The texts are important. They're the object that we can continually go back to and says, yes, but what does it say, right? Um, but without the live life, uh, the text really doesn't do much. <laughs> You're actually making Karl Barth's uh, assertion, right? That um, that the if you know to put it crassly, if if the Bible were on the backside of the planet formerly known as Pluto, um, right. <laughs> would it be would it be the word of God? And, and he's tempted to say, no, it's not until you engage it and live it that it actually somehow becomes the word. Now he's got a whole fancy way of working that out in his theology. Um, but I think Christians should be very sympathetic to this, um, that this is exactly what that first century rabbi named Jesus and John the Baptist seem to be uh, preaching as well to their disciples. Well, I think it it this kind of approach to scripture is the the interpretive equivalent of the entire basis for a biblical theology in terms mm -hmm. of the human relationship with God. This is the human relationship with God. What right. do I mean by that? Every single, um, every single philosophy in the history of humankind has had to deal with the following challenge, the apparent unity in heaven and diversity on earth, or to put it in a different way, the the harmony in heaven and the disunity and discord upon mm -hmm. earth. And traditionally there have been two ways that all philosophers from the ancient days until now have answered that question. Way number one is to say, um, and, and by the way, both responses to the challenge have in some ways denied the premise of the question, right? So response number one will be to affirm, you know, the disunity and the discord and the injustice upon earth and simply say that the existence of those things demonstrates that unity in heaven or beauty or harmony in heaven is merely an illusion. Mm. All there is, is earthly existence and earthly existence is crass and, and awful. And we're just 
specks of dirt uh, in, an, in a mostly empty universe and deal with it. Um, the second approach says... Um, there's... Oh, hold on, let's put some names on that so I can think of some Stoic traditions that might lean in this direction. Yeah, I think the, I, I, yes, I think the, I think this is sort of like, this begins with like Epicureanism and it continues all the way through new atheism today. Right. I think that's kind of the through line that you would see. And, and you can d- definitely could hear uh, hints of Freud there. I, th- exa- I think yeah. exa- that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, then the alternative, which you find, which you find, you know, a great deal in the medieval period and survives in kind of like pop theology today is the opposite tack, which is to say there's only, uh, there's only unity in heaven and any discord and injustice upon earth is merely an illusion. And so what looks like pain and suffering is not really pain and suffering. If you could only know the divine perspective, if you could only see the plan, you would know that nothing bad is really happening. And so while the, you know, and so the second approach sort of says there's only unity in heaven. If, if according to the first approach, um, there is, there is only suffering and no relief. According to the second approach, there is, there is no suffering at all. Uh, there is only, there's only harmony and only God. Both of those, what Judaism does and what the Hebrew Bible does from the moment that it enters in, you know, on, into human existence is it denies quite straightforwardly both of those traditions mm-hmm. and its principal critique of both of those answers is that it's, is that their answers because the Jewish tradition isn't looking for answers. The Jewish tradition is looking for questions, which is why. The Hebrew Bible begins in media res, right? I think people often think of the Bible as like the, the originator of human society. It's not. The Bible is a response to human society. The Bible is a response to empire. Abraham, the Bible begins with a journey away from civilization, with Abraham right. leaving Mesopotamia. Exodus begins with the Israelites leaving empire, leaving Egypt. These are the two most fantastic, phenomenal, cosmic empires in the world. The, the Mesopotamians, the Egyptians, and then later in the Bible, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. So what, what Jewish tradition does is it begins with a question, and it affirms that, that uh, what's actually important about the paradox of unity in heaven and disharmony upon earth is that it's a paradox. What does that mean for the relationship between man and God? So to, to, to illustrate what this, um, what this kind of affirmation, well, let me back up a little bit. The two approaches that I outlined before imply that the relationship with God is either a non-issue because there is no God or, or, or at least God's not listening, or the relationship with God is a monologue, right? God speaks and we listen. Hmm. What Judaism says is that it must be a dialogue because that's what questions are. We are supposed to, we respond to the question of injustice with questions of our own. And to kind of illustrate how this works in practice. So I remember, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, who passed away uh, just this past year during the COVID era, um, he was once asked, you know, a typically heartrending and difficult question that somebody of his caliber would often receive, which was, where was God during the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, um, as I heard somebody, 
someone I heard someone on TV say this recently, but or, or at least something like this. Oh, right, it was right after the Surfside accident. So uh, Wolf Blitzer asked like a Chabad rabbi, you know, where was God during Surfside? And the first answer that he gave, which I thought was brilliant, was anybody who has anybody who has an answer to that question is an idiot. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's that's the first answer. Yeah, yeah. But what Rabbi Sachs said is, you know, when you ask where was God during the Holocaust, the answer is God was there. God's the one who said, "Thou shalt not kill." God is the one who has given human beings all of the tools to not just avoid holocausts, but promote human suffering. Why does God not intervene to, to remove the possibility of holocausts? The answer is because it's the very same reason that God created beings with choice. What God wants is not to, to preside over a series of anthills. What God wants is a relationship. And the only way you can have a relationship is if, is if you have a dialogue. The only way dialogue is possible is if your partner can choose whether to be to participate in the dialogue or not. Which means that in order for God to have with us the most precious, in order for God to give us the most precious possible thing he could, which is the possibility of a true relationship with him, not, not pure slavish subservience, but an actual relationship, God, as it were, and you know, in Jewish mystical thought, there are all sorts of wonderful expressions of this that are quite profound. God, as it were, um, makes himself smaller. Uh, God makes space for human choice. This and is uh, called zimzum, right? Exactly, zimzum, yeah. which means minimizing. Yeah. Um, and so, when Rabbi Sachs says, "Where was God during the Holocaust?" God's the one who said, "Thou shalt not kill." That's the Jewish way of saying what God does is essentially gives humans the ability to participate in a relationship by choosing with him, by choosing good or choosing evil. But God, it's not like God doesn't have a stake in how that relationship turns out. God wants mm -hmm. that relationship to be virtuous and promote flourishing. And so what God does is he does what Jewish tradition prizes more than anything else, which is that, which is that he teaches. Hmm. Um, God teaches us what to do. And now it's up to us, how do we respond? So the reason I mention all of this is because this, I think, mirrors perfectly the, the dynamic between written Torah and oral Torah, Torah Shebikhtav and Torah Shebaalpeh, text and tradition that, that, that Judaism prizes, because that's the ultimate expression of the relationship that we believe that God craves with all human beings, which is that God speaks, that's the written Torah, and then we respond, and that's the mm -hmm. oral Torah. And it's that relationship, uh, it's, it's that relationship that the tradition kind of intellectualizes, conceptualizes, and makes real through the interpretive tradition. So you're coming very dangerously close to what we call reform theology in the Christian <laughs> tradition, where God initiates relationship and the appropriate response is to respond and, and join, which also includes pushing back. It includes dialogue, right? So, uh, so Abraham or Abram uh, has no problem saying, "Hey, 
where's my where's my heir? And then once he believes that, he's like, how am I to know I'm going to possess this land? Right? You, you say this, but how am I to know? And um, and or even you think of uh, uh, Cain and Abel. You know, God's first interaction with Cain is to reason with him about uh, what he's done, and like, hey, this could have been a different way, right? Um, and even saying I'll pay is upon the mouth, right? Uh, I, I think that that's the literal uh, reading of it, right? But um, the Torah, it's actually upon upon the life and the community, and it's not enough for one person to commit to this, but um, the community has to be committed to this practice. Uh, I want to draw upon one example in the Gospels that uh, actually a Jewish friend of mine pointed out to me um, that I had misread for a long time. Uh, and uh, because I said, well, you know, Jesus really comes after this kind of uh, pharisaical uh, view of, of oral Torah, right? Uh, and and he said, where? And I said, well, you know, and Matthew, he's, he he says, you know, you tithe mint, Dylan Kuhlman, but you you ignored the weightier matters of the law, which you ought to not have done. Um, and he just pointed out something so basic. I had uh, it's amazing how you get in your trapped in your ways of thinking. And he said, yeah, Jesus didn't say they were wrong for tithing mint, Dylan Kuhlman. You know, like he walked into a situation where somebody at some point had thought. Hey, we're supposed to tithe, give every, you know, it all comes from God. We're supposed to give, does that include our spices even? Does that include, how far down does the tithe go? And someone decided, hey, let's be safe. If we're talking about improvisation, let's be safe and go all the way down to the uh, to those. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, you get it. He's actually affirming them. Hey, you got it. You just didn't apply it equally to these other issues of the Torah. Um, yeah, at that it's point, fun- my brain broke. <laughs> Because I was yeah, like, well, it, I can't use that caricature anymore. <laughs> it's so funny because I remember the first time that I read, this happened to me the first time I read Matthew and the first time that I read uh, the book of Revelation was I, because I sort of did not grow up with a tradition of interpretation of these right. texts, I sort of didn't come into them with some some of the preconceived notions that I, I later learned are, are standard. And one of those was when... <laughs> It came to the book of Revelation. So, so you know, there's, a, I think the, the sort of standard tradition in scholarship is to assume that John of Patmos's audience are sort of, uh, are sort of non Jews and he's sort of castigating mm. the Jewish community as sort of that the That has been a very Satan. standard trope. Right. In Although the synagogue. Not, not today as much. So, right. They, yeah. Exactly. In the synagogue of Satan, those are the Jews who think they're Christians but aren't. And I remember I didn't know any of this. So when I came in and I read it, it was obvious to me that he was speaking to Jews. I mean, this this book sounds it sounds like the book of Daniel. I mean, it's right, pretty exactly. And I remember kind of walking into a seminar and people arguing about this and not quite understanding what the argument was about because I I just I couldn't same thing with Matthew 23. Matthew 23, it, it reads quite frankly like a lot of sort of standard works of Jewish exhortation hmm. where, where it's very standard. It's sort of very standard to hear things like, um, you know, you keep all the laws down to the very tiniest, you know, to the very tiniest Humrah, right. Which is sort of the, the Aramaic term for, you know, the stringencies, right? Like right. You keep every law down to the very tiniest stringency, but you forget about helping the poor and about being honest in business and all these kinds of things. This is a form that this kind of form of exhortation dates back, I mean, all the way to the Bible, but you could trace it through the early modern, the medieval period, the early modern period down to, you could hear rabbis speaking this way today. 
no one in their right mind would ever think that that means that you shouldn't observe the law, the right. stringencies of the law. Right. You should only do the other stuff. It's, 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 of well, course you have to do both, right? That's kind of yeah. how yeah, I, so I take I, it to be equivalent to the prophetic critique of sacrifices. They're not saying quit doing the sacrifice. They're saying, right. if you, if you were to do the sacrifice, the way it's supposed to be done, which includes the weighty, the weight, the weightier matters or the poor, the et cetera. So what, what they're criticizing, what the prophets are criticizing. I mean, this is usually the analogy that I, that I kind of utilize is the prophets are criticizing bad religion. So right. just like if you were to criticize Not bad, the band. right. Just like, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> just like if you were to criticize bad science, you wouldn't say that the solution is no science. The solution right. is, is good science. Right. The same thing with religion. The solution to bad religion is not no religion. It's good religion. Right. Um, exactly. And for the prophets, the solution to bad observance of the covenant is not to ditch the covenant. It's to properly observe the covenant. It's holistic practice of the covenant. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we've wandered through quite a bit of land here uh, from <laughs> uh, from some ideas about, but, but notice, I guess, in, in all of this discussion, we're working from deeply embedded principles that, I mean, part of the cheat is you've had this life where you've had the ability, the time, the effort, you, you obviously have the intellect that goes along with it, to where <laughs> you have worked across the scriptures, you have read with the rabbis, you have kind of worked out all these issues. And so what you say, and I go like, oh yeah, I, I see this as well. I can sit here and casually agree with you. Um, but I think we also have to admit, so for a lot of Christians that listen to us or that read what we're doing, um, there is this thing that you have to do, which is you actually have to read the text. So we, we, we just made this big argument about, well, it's oral and it's practice, yes. But at the end of the day, if you don't have any idea what's going on in the text, uh, then the, the actual tradition is going to be a dangerous tradition. It's going to be kind of a, a loose cannon on a swinging deck, right? That's right. And by the way, there, it, you know, the realization that this is the, that this is the right way to read the text and it's how the text actually intends itself to be interpreted. This is a, it's not like, it's not like Christian Europe sort of ignored this and continues to ignore it. This right. was the, the realization that this is the case is what produced the political revolution that we now call the United States of America. Mm. Uh, in the 17th century, sort of in the wake of the reformation, this is, this is what gives birth to a movement called Christian Hebraism, which is right. the idea that, you know, if we want our, uh, if we want our societal institutions and political thought and philosophies to be rooted in scripture. So we need help in interpreting, you know, some of these very opaque passages. And if we want, uh, that kind of help, we're going to want traditions that are ancient and that have a pedigree. And so what the most prominent not just theologians, but political philosophers and public intellectuals in the 17th, 16th and 17th century do is they undertake this massive effort of translating great Jewish works of rabbinic thought, the mm. Talmud works of Jewish mysticism, like the Zohar works of Jewish apologetics, like the Kuzari and works of Jewish law and caught and, and, and Jewish legal codes, like the code of Maimonides and his philosophical thought. All of that gets translated into Latin and eventually some other languages. And, you know, the, the, the greatest political thinkers in Europe in the 17th century, from John Milton of Paradise Lost fame to John Selden, whose uh, who's, uh, greatest academic biography is called Renaissance England's Chief Rabbi, um, mm. because he was such a Talmudic scholar. All right. of these people, they study Hebrew, they learn works of Jewish wisdom, and, print, and again, these are fervent 
Christians. Uh, and they are, you know, and, and many of them held views that I think today we would probably call anti-Semitic. Uh, but in their context and in their time, <laughs> these were people who were, who were part of bridging a, a historic chasm between Jewish and Christian wisdom, because they're the ones who sort of say, oh my goodness, you know, they're, you know, what, what we kind of did, you know, in the Christian world is we were the ones who made sure that Jerusalem would conquer all of its conquerors, right? The only city in world history to ever do that. Jerusalem conquered all of its conquerors. Um, I mean, think about, think about what happened to the Greeks, what happened to Rome. Um, and the Jews were, you know, were the ones who really just spent a tremendous amount of time preserving these traditions and these ways of thinking and being and, and interacting with the text and all of its in all of its glory and complexity. And these thinkers in the 16th and 17th century started to kind of bridge these worlds together. And out of that reading and out of that learning came some of the most, you know, uh, transformative, revolutionary ideas in the history of the West. There's a great book that I cannot recommend highly enough to your listeners, uh, and it's called The Hebrew Republic by Eric Nelson, who's, oh, a, yeah. who's a historian uh, at Harvard. And what he argues is that actually the idea of what, what he calls Republican exclusivism, right? The idea that not only may you have or may a society create a republic, but they, it's, they must create a republic. And in fact, monarchy is a form of idolatry. That notion, which is which is is critical to understanding the history of the West and is essential and is in fact copied uh, by the framers uh, and the founders of the American experiment. Thomas Paine uses it, John Adams, Washington, mm. Jefferson. Those ideas begin, they enter into European consciousness only for the first time in the 17th century. And they are explicitly traced by Republican thinkers in the 17th century to rabbinic texts. Uh, John Milton, for example, traces his ideas on liberty to explicitly to the rabbis, the rabbis of the Talmud, and he name checks many of them. Um, I mean, so Christian sort of Christendom has before undertaken the task of right. sort of engaging in this kind of learning. In fact, the pilgrims, when they arrive on Plymouth Rock, um, they bring with them great works of uh, great Christian works of delving into rabbinic thought, the most important of which is Henry Ainsworth's commentary on the Pentateuch and the Psalms. Henry Ainsworth was uh, a Christian theologian in England. Uh, he died, you know, he was, uh, he lived and died a pauper. He was a poor man his entire life, but a tremendous uh, theologian and a great, uh, and, and had a great influence over all the, the people who would eventually become the pilgrims. Um, he sort of popularized throughout uh, uh, Christian circles, especially English speaking ones, the rabbinic idea of uh, uh, that there are 70 faces to the Torah, meaning that that there are so many different ways to understand each passage and you have to really get into the guts of each words, word in order mm. to understand what it means. He quoted rabbinic literature. He quoted medieval Jewish sages all over the place. And the pilgrims actually brought these books with them and passed them on to their kids. American liberty and thought and morals and, and mores are incomprehensible, not just with that Hebrew biblical wisdom, but with Jewish thought. And of course, with Christian morality and thought as well. So I think, you know, we're at this moment in history, this extraordinary moment in history where, you know, we're almost, we're, we're ready for sort of like the second great awakening in this respect, right? Mm -hmm. We're, we are, we're at a moment where 
biblical, you know, these sort of traditional ways of interpreting the Bible have never been more accessible than they are now. They've never been translated into more languages than they are now. They've, there, there, there have never, you have, people have never had access to more quality teachers and explicators, uh, of this kind of thinking than they're, than they have in this era. So, you know, if you're the kind of person who's interested in really delving into the, the biblical text, the way it intended itself to be engaged, you're, you're, you've no human being has ever lived in a better time for that right. than you are right now. And yet people are less biblically literate now than they've, than they've been in a long time. Hey man, uh, we, uh, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we, we do. Keeps us employed. Um, <laughs> Well, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance on these thorny issues. Thanks for having me on. This is awesome. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.